welcome you back to the Fresh Expressions podcast. I'm Gannon Sims. And I am Heather Jalad. And we're at uh, episode four. Yes, episode four. How did we get here? Well, we're looking (laughs) at 2,000 years of innovation in the church, if you can believe that. The church has been innovating from its beginning. And and the, the point of this podcast is that we believe that any church can reach people who don't go to church. Any church can innovate. Yeah. And and through the podcast, we're, we're unraveling the complexities of today's local mission field and introducing resources from r- practitioners. And, and in this case, from academic practitioners uh, as yeah. well. So, um, you know, when, when you hear the, the word church, you um, likely think of something that you've actually been inside of, uh, maybe a, a space, a building, a community that you're part of. Um, but the church is old and the church has taken on a variety of forms. And so um, it, it's exciting, uh, Heather, you, you were able to have a conversation with Elaine Heath um, about yeah. this very thing. Elaine, sort of a pioneer in, in, in what we, we might call missional, monastic, and yes. mainline. Um, and, oh, and maybe so, she wrote a yeah. book called that. Yeah. I think so. I think so. <laughs> um, another one that I love, the, the mystic way of evangelism. Oh and gosh, I just love yeah. the juxtaposition of mystic and evangelism because you don't see those two words uh, together very much, which is uh, why Elaine's such an important uh uh, part of this conversation. Yeah, she she that's actually how I was introduced Elaine to Elaine initially. Um I think I've read most of her books, if not all of them. Um and she'll mention the next one that's coming out in our conversation, but The Mystic Way of Evangelism was handed to me by a a colleague uh who was actually in um the, the doctoral program at Perkins when Elaine was there and he said, I really, Heather, I read this book and this sounds like you, you really need to read this book. So that was my introduction. And um, it's a great conversation, really, um, because Elaine uh, is a self-described instigator, which, you know, a lot of times we we uh, describe ourselves in the Fresh Expressions movement as uh, holy mischief makers. Uh, the, she she uh, names a number of uh, what you would describe as instigators across uh, 2000 years of, of church history. And, um, and one thing that they really all held in common is they were a part of the existing church and, um, really instigated change and innovation, um, from within the existing church. So very much aligned with what this movement of fresh expressions is all about. And, um, uh, Elaine brings so much to the table because she does have that, um, has served in those academic roles, but is absolutely a, a practitioner uh, of all that she teaches and um, and shares in the 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 missional and the monastic, and um, and she'll share a little bit about um, really kind of the the decentralized uh, vision and witness of a spring forest, which is a a new um, missional uh, movement that she's a part of now. So. I look forward to sharing the conversation and uh, once again, pray that um, everyone that is listening is inspired and, um, and, and does some own instigating on their own. That's great. Hi, everybody. I'm so excited to get to share with you my new friend, uh, Elaine Heath, who brings so much to the table around uh, innovative expressions of church. So um, before we get that conversation started, I would love for you, Elaine, to introduce yourself the way you like to be introduced. 
Hi, it's so great to be here, and I'm honored to be on this podcast. Um, my favorite introduction that was ever made of me was at a Path One event, and they introduced me as Elaine Heath Instigator. <laughs> <laughs> that says it all, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, and I think the reason they gave me that that name was that I've done so much work. Um, it's just central to my calling to um, open imaginations of people. Mm-hmm. And fan into flame that desire that's a sacred desire to go and do something new and different in order to fully express the gospel in a local context using that person's everything about that person's life, their resources, everything that they are, their story. And so uh, instigating um, formation of new faith communities. And these are communities that heal the world, that heal neighborhoods, mm-hmm. and especially that heal the wounds inflicted by Christendom. Yeah. So um, I was uh, a pastor in East Ohio Conference. Uh, that's where I was ordained uh, back in the day. And then I went into academia and worked as a professor of evangelism for 11 years at Perkins School of Theology, the McCreelis professor, and then um, was recruited to come to Duke Divinity School, where I served as dean and um, professor of uh, pastoral and missional theology. And then I uh, retired from Duke and founded Neighborhood Seminary, which is a nonprofit, well, it's a nonprofit, but it's a non-traditional form of theological education and missional formation, spiritual formation for lay people predominantly to help them neighbor well and be able to live the gospel in their neighborhoods in in deep and meaningful ways. So uh, here now I'm uh, the abbess at the community at Spring Forest. And, um, uh, yeah, co-founder of our church here, the church at Spring Forest, and we live in community and I'll get into that a little bit more later on, I think in the interview. Yeah. 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 I, I definitely want you to share kind of how Spring Forest came into being and kind of what's emerged and bubbled up over the last uh, six years and its existence. I know that's kind of uh, changed and, um, and, and, and adapted to our current reality, I, I'm sure in a number of ways, but I told Elaine when uh, we came into the room together that um, uh, I've probably read all of her books or most of her books. Uh, we, we are very much kindred spirits and, and Elaine brings so much to the table, I think, in um, in what it means to embody, to incarnate uh, the gospel in our places and spaces and our uh, local context uh, that I think are, are are so significant and so needed in um, in uh, what it means to be the church today, and um, and frankly missing in a lot of ways. And fresh expression, fresh expressions, really seeks to um, uh, you know build faith communities centered centered around the person and work of Jesus in those everyday places and spaces of life um, with people that will uh, frankly never come into our existing churches. Uh, so, uh, Elaine, we were talking about the fact that, you know, innovative expressions of church is, uh, is, is nothing new, right? It's something that's happened across uh, the history of the church, the landscape of the church. Um, so, we were talking about some specific movements, which we can get to, but are there some that have been especially impactful or meaningful or kind of um, uh, guides that you have looked to in your own ministry? There are. uh, The first one would be when the Apostle Paul undergoes this amazing conversion and it just sort of 
really upends his whole world. And the the magnitude of what happens to him where he realizes that God is for all people and not just for the Jews, mm. what this is going to mean um, is very dramatic. We're in one of those culture shifts now. It's, it's just yeah. as dramatic as that because it's like God has escaped from the church. That what we think is God, God has escaped right. from the church. But um, so this, this, what's happening now, this new reformation is going to prove to be as dramatic, I believe, as when the apostle Paul, Saul becomes Paul yes, and uh, realizes, oh, wait, God is so much bigger than I thought and, and cares so much more about everybody and everything than I, than I realized. So there's that one. And then um, I'm really inspired by the desert fathers and mothers, the early monastic movements of the church, those, those early efforts, uh, some of which were bizarre. <laughs> you know, some of them were, some of them were um, just a little crazy. Um, but they were responding to the Spirit's call to do something more um, em- embodying the gospel in ways that were not co-opted by empire. I mean, that's where this was coming from. So that's important to me. Yeah. And then when you go forward, um, I think of the Beguines, that, that group of unauthorized lay women who just went ahead yes. and, and actually <laughs> did stuff without permission from anybody. Yes, <laughs> yes. We, we like those ladies. <laughs> Into a lot of trouble um, for being godly, and you know, how it goes. <laughs> I think of all the radicals of the Reformations, um, you know, the Anabaptists and Menno Simons, and all those folks, and and even the ones that were uh, sort of like we could say proto Pentecostals, you know, the Lollards, for example. Mm-hmm, <laughs> These mm-hmm. people all got into so much trouble from the inherited church yeah. simply because they were they were listening to the Spirit's call. Yeah. to enliven their faith, to, to take seriously discipleship, to take seriously the gifts of all God's people. Um, and, and so they faithfully gave their lives to carrying the gospel forward, even though it was, you know, herky-jerky at times. It involved some really neurotic people at times. And, mm-hmm. and we had to suffer a lot of persecution at times. So um, Wesley is another one that, uh, you know, he had his issues and everything, and yet he was faithful. <laughs> B.B. Palmer is one of my favorites. Uh, mm. Again, you know, somebody with her own issues and yet was faithful, became the mother of the Wesleyan holiness movement. And to me, Phoebe Palmer would be one who's a great um, Methodist mystic, especially for fresh mm. impressions people, especially for yeah. innovators. So I I guess that's probably a long enough list. Yeah, no, that's a great list. And I think the thing that, you know, uh, when we talk about, you know, the, um, the inability in a lot of ways of, of these Christendom models of, of, of church connecting with, uh, our, our kind of in this new reformation era that we're in the midst of, um, the thing I think it's important for everybody to hear is all the people that Elaine just listed or all people in, in the existing or inherited church that, um, really felt the tension of the sometimes disconnect between the inherited church and the wider world and how the gospel connects, um, to everyday people and everyday life and all of the places and spaces they inhabit, not just in a building for about an hour, one day a week. Right. (laughs) So, um, uh, and, and really stretch the limits and push the limits on what it meant to be a, a follower of Jesus in all of these different um, times across history. And um, 
So Elaine, Elaine has taught me that I've been saying beg wins wrong. It's begins, right? <laughs> so begins are are, are 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 fascinating in that they were a movement of lay women that began in the uh, the medieval uh, era. Um, more than 800 years ago and um, places across Europe and in uh, Paris and Brussels and um, and um, and and in Amsterdam. I mean, those were pr- probably some of the larger communities of, of Beguines, but they really pushed some of the the norms, right? Um, and the the beauty, I think, of that movement that I think relates so many um, so in so many ways with fresh expressions is um, their. Uh, their ability to kind of live in the world, um, but express their faith in ways that had a powerful and profound impact on the communities that they inhabited. Um, Not only uh, speaking and preaching and writing in local vernaculars and the language of the people um, that was very, very different than the church of their day, but having the ability to navigate the, um, the, the scholarly realm and the, uh, um, in the, the, the inherited forms of church, even at that time as women, um, was, was really, really pushing a lot of, um, norms and societal norms as far as, as women were, were concerned and their ability to, to, to live together and to support one another in the way that they did. I mean, these were all women, which was uh, a little different as well. Um, that kind of grew into these cities of ladies as they were called, um, and and so I think there are a lot of the the, con, the contextual uh, quality, the um, incarnational quality to what they did, that formational, that missional in the world. Um, whereas they could have potentially become nuns, or uh, you know, possibly joined um, different monastic or, or monasteries. Um, you know, uh, at that point in time, I think a lot of women were. Uh, not necessarily the, the the room was not being made for them um in those places if they wanted to to be a part of it so they started and did something on their own they kind of went out on the the edge and did their own thing and um and all of these qualities i think were really significant um to to who they became um <clears throat> as a movement so i would love for you um elaine is there um is there any other uh any other thing that you wanted to to kind of share about them um I, you mentioned them in Longing for Spring um, <laughs> that you wrote with Scott Kisker. I know that um, Mike Moyna, who uh, is one of the fathers of the Fresh Expressions movement in the UK, um, spoke a great deal to them and the significance of um, uh, of them in, in Christian history in uh, one of his books. I can't remember if it was Church in Context or Church, um, Church in Life, but um, anything else that you would want to share about them? Well, it's about another movement that has some things in common with the Beguines, um, and that would be the the spread of the gospel by the ancient Celts, mm. the, the Celtic tradition, which is a completely separate tradition from the Western Church and from the Orthodox Church. It was its own movement, <clears throat> and Celtic spirituality, Celtic Christianity has been very influential for the development of Spring Forest for my own theological growth and um, just other people that I that I'm close to that are working on similar things. So if people wanted to read about that, I would recommend John Philip Newell's book, Sacred Earth, Sacred Soul. 
Okay. And, and just to be a, maybe a bit of a provocateur, um, <laughs> uh, one of the people that you'll read about in that book is Pelagius. And I remember in seminary, you know, Pelagius got a black eye over and over again. Um, everything that was written about him that we students read was written by his detractors and his enemies, mm. the ones that, mm. won the, that won the disputes. And so uh, what I've discovered is Pelagius is, is a kindred spirit. And mm-hmm. <laughs> this theology that we really need today, um, especially re- regarding the, the uh, sacredness of the created world and that we are yeah. part of the created world. But that's probably enough about that for now. You refer to yourself as an instigator, and all of these folks, all of these folks that you've listed, are are also uh, instigators of of change, right? And uh, change is hard, and and sometimes people are are skeptical uh, about that. Um, uh, folks that push the edges or the norms, and and yet, um, just based on the list that you've shared with us, so significant to. Uh, to church history and to who we who we are today as a result, um, and I think also, um, uh, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. These are things; these are movements and people that we need to continue to look to to uh, uh, help us chart the course for this uh, uncharted territory that we uh, seemingly find ourselves in now. Um, in the now third, almost third year of the pandemic. Uh, but I know something began to kind of take root um, about six years ago with you mm-hmm. in um, in Spring Forest. So why don't you share the story of kind of how that came to be and, um, you know, kind of how that bubbled up and, and maybe some things that have um, maybe changed the trajectory of that along the way as as. Uh, we often share in um, forming fresh expressions. Um, these are always uh, communities, micro church communities, potentially, or communities of, of uh, people that are looking to center their lives in Christ that to change and adapt and are nimble and don't necessarily know where they're going, but, uh, but, but continuously listen for where the Spirit's calling them and leading them. So please share about Spring Forest. Sure. Um yeah, and you're right. Uh, we do have to go into this kind of ministry ready to pivot at any moment. Um, I'm actually teaching a, a webinar one evening in March that it, you can you can see the information on the Neighborhood Seminary website, and it's on okay. strategic intent instead of strategic planning, mm. strategic intent, because that's how you guide communities like this. And anybody who's able to navigate the the constant shifting that we have to do uh, really has to operate by strategic intent. And I tap into the Celtic tradition to help us understand what that looks like on the ground. And that's what we use here at Spring Forest. So uh, about 20 years ago, my husband and I bought a farm in Ohio. This was when I was, I was in my very first academic job that was just a couple years long. And we we had in mind to do some things like what we're doing now at Spring Forest. And I only mention that because that vision came to us, you know, more than 20 years ago. And we bought the land and then we ne- I needed to make a job change and so we could go to Texas. And he had to sell that farm. It was very sad. But when we put the farm on the market, and it was the exact acreage of Spring Forest, by the way. Huh. We put the farm huh. on the market and I sensed God saying to me, uh, don't give up on this dream. It will happen in the future. 
on a better mm. piece of land and when the timing is better. So hold on to this sacred dream. So we held on to the sacred dream all these years. Well, and, and in Texas, we lived in a suburban community, you know, a sort of multicultural suburban community. So um, when we got ready to, to move here, we came on our house hunting trip and we told our realtor we wanted to look for a rural piece of property because we were thinking, okay, now we will buy that, that place where this is going to eventually happen. And we were imagining, well, it'll happen mostly after I retire. And we were imagining that would be maybe 10 years until I would retire from working full-time in academia. Mm -hmm. So we found this, we, we found this property and it, it was so beautiful. Uh, and we bought it and our friends, two of our friends who lived with us in Texas, an older couple named Ed and Wendy Miller moved with us here. They had lived with us in community in Texas for a few years. And we all just right. felt like they're supposed to be here with us too. So here we all came and, mm -hmm. uh, we began right away doing some retreat ministries and spiritual formation, the kind of things that we did in Texas, although I wasn't able to participate much because my job was so demanding, you know, 60, 70 hours a week. Yeah, yeah. So we started that. And then <clears throat> we'd been here about a year. We noticed the farm next door was all the high tunnels. There were like nine high tunnels, hoop houses. We noticed the farmer was taking those down and we had already befriended our farmer that farmer and everybody else around us, we think that's important to get to know your neighbor. Yes. Yes. So, so Wendy and I just went over and knocked on the door and asked her, are you selling your farm? Oh my goodness. <laughs> we said, yes. Uh, you know, he was having some health problems and wow. so on. And, and this was a very famous farm in the triangle. He's, he was very famous for growing salad greens year round, you know, which huh. is hard to do in the heat of the summer. So he had uh, a lot of expertise and everything. And so, so Randall and I went to talk to him later. That's my husband. And we said, look, um, we, don't, we don't even know if this would work out or we can afford it. But before you put it on the market, let us know. Um, because if we, if we can afford it, we think we'd like to buy it. Um, and, uh, and we told him the story of back in Ohio 20 years ago. Wow. <laughs> so, so that started the conversation and we ended up, buying the farm. And right around the time we bought the farm, it was just before we signed the closing documents, actually. Um, I found out I was stepping down as dean. So my whole situation was going to change at Duke. And yeah. so we decided, no, we're just going to go for it. So what we did, we invited um, some friends of ours from that are in, that were living in Kansas at the time. The husband, Francis, was was one of my students at Perkins and had been very involved in all the missional wisdom projects in Dallas. Okay. He lived in one of those community houses. He anchored a new day community in a refugee neighborhood. And he was also my grad assistant and managed the community garden that I had started on campus. And he's from Kenya and, and um, was a very experienced pastor and church planter, but um, was getting his master's degree. So we, we asked if Francis would come and help us to develop all of this. And so it took some work to, you know, we were dealing with three different bishops and kind of conferences and whatnot, but he said, yes, he would come out here. So they came out here and then, and we got started. So they lived in the house next door, the house that's on the farm. We live in our house and between the two houses had several guest rooms for retreats and for visitors and so on. And we started to rebuild the, uh, the, the infrastructure of the farm, which was, which needed some help. So um, meanwhile, there was just a, a, 
a random collection of people that we'd met along the way in this area, and we told them we're going to start a dinner church. This is fall of 2019. We're going to start a dinner church, and um, we're going to develop this farm into a, a revenue stream to fund our mission, and a central part of our mission will be uh, support of refugees in their resettlement here. So we had clarity about that that much. Yeah. So off we went, and then there were some problems with, um, well, without going into too much detail, yeah, there were problems with uh, the process of green cards for all immigrants at that time because mm-hmm. of, of uh, the Trump administration. And mm-hmm. so our plan for the for-profit farm business had to be shelved. We mm-hmm. were growing things, but we couldn't sell them because of the visa status of our lead farmer. Okay. So um, because he, he, he was here on a religious worker visa. So we realized that we weren't going to be able to afford to keep paying for the farm without having income coming from the farm. Right. This was our first major pivot. Mm-hmm. Is we had clarity about we, what we were called to do. We have a rule of life, work, prayer, take, uh, prayer work, table, and neighbor. So we were doing that. Nice. There were about 30 people involved. But uh, we had to pivot on how much land we'd have, what we would do with our land, what Randall and I would do with our land. and so. Uh, so we had to put it on the market, and our new faith community office folks here were, and the bishop and DS were all very supportive, as we had to pivot with our expectations for the farming side of things. So that was uh, December of 2019, and then wow. in early 2020, I went out to California to teach at an academy for spiritual formation, and. Um, my topic that had been assigned for the week was spiritual discernment for leaders, especially those who were innovating. Mm. So I'm teaching about discernment all week. And I get to the fourth day and I tell the story of how we're having to pivot. And I talk about how we always must hold the vision with open hands. Yes. Yes. Like, you know, the apostle Paul uh, gets called by God. God gives Paul this vision of this really strapping Macedonian man. Come over to Macedonia. I'm ready to receive. And so Paul says, yes, I'll go. And he gets there. There was never a Macedonian man. It was a, a bunch of women by the river. But, you know, I just think <laughs> if he'd seen a bunch of women by the river, maybe he wouldn't have been as inspired to go, you know? <laughs> well, that's the- <laughs> That's so good. That's so good. Well, God speaks in the the, the language of His people, does He not? <laughs> yeah, get us where we need to be, and you know, so good. There's an obstacle. God's like a river that flows around. We just kind of yes, yes, God. yes. So, so good. So, uh, a woman came up to me after that class. This back at the class in California, and meanwhile, our farms on the market back here in North Carolina. And um, she says, the Holy Spirit has been speaking to me all week, and I'm sure that my husband and I are supposed to buy your farm so you can keep doing what you're doing. We live in Texas. We're taking care of elderly parents. Oh, by the way, we were missionaries in Ghana for 11 years. We were, we're both, Holy moly. both engineers. We're lay people. But the stuff that you're doing, especially with refugees and with the land, is the sort of thing we'd like to do in our retirement. We've talked about it so many times. Hmm. And so... We could buy your farm and um, just come out and visit a few times a year and spend a couple of weeks at a time. And then uh, when our parents are gone and don't need us, we can move there and just really join in wholeheartedly with what you're doing. Wow. And they bought that farm sight unseen. Holy moly. I mean, they bought it within weeks. And 
what that did was open all sorts of doors. I mean, it took the financial burden away. Yeah. They said to us, uh, you don't have to, we don't have to earn money from the farm. We're okay with our, with our income. And, um, so they, they charge us $50 a month to rent this beautiful farm with <laughs> organic farm with the soil is beautiful. And then uh, they charge just like what an apartment will cost here in Hillsboro for, for the house to be the parsonage. So, yeah. so this was our next pivot. And then because of COVID, we subdivided right. our dinner church into neighborhood things according to what mm -hmm. people are passionate about. And... Uh, then, and this couple, Charlie and Mary Kay, are now on our lead team. They just do everything by Zoom, and they come and go, you know, a few times a year. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, so what has happened is, over the last um, two years now, since COVID began, our church has really grown. COVID didn't harm us at all in terms of, you know, a lot of churches, uh, people were driven out of the building, and then we're like, it, and it, you know, what do we do right. now? But we were, right. we, we never had a building and we don't want one. We, we have a barn right. and we've got gardens. And so we were able to continue to build our fellowship because it was all outdoors anyway. <clears throat> and we have uh, been able to build up the health of the farm and form partnerships with many uh, organizations and churches. And uh, we've got a whole pack of volunteers who, who can't stand religion but really care about the environment or the yes, yes. Jesus, we can't take the church. And so right. but now, now we have uh, another pivot coming. Francis is getting ready to go back to Great Plains Conference because he feels like he's fulfilled what he was called here to do in, in co-founding this community. And, okay. um, and we've asked, we being our community and Francis and myself, have asked that I be appointed now when Francis leaves to be the bivocational abbess for the whole community. So that okay. the dispersed community, as well as who who's living on the, on the campus of our ministry. So, um, so now we've just got a whole range of ministries that are happening and um, it's very exciting. And uh, this is like the most rewarding form of church mm -hmm. I've ever been a part of. And we, we even are going to start having a worship gathering once a month again around a campfire. We'll start that up again. And nice. we've had to just suspend that kind of close togetherness because of, right. but we'll be able to do that in March. So, well, there's two things that there's two things that, I mean, there's a number of things that you've mentioned, I think that are uh, bear repeating or, or, um, undergirding and one of them is you know facing these obstacles that you've faced along the way and not like throwing in the towel but saying you know what what's God inviting us to do and not necessarily seeing those um those obstacles as obstacles but potentially opportunities and I think that's certainly something that um that many of us who have been a part of the fresh expressions movement can, can testify to. Um, and that whole idea of strategic intent instead of strategic planning is so significant to that, right? Yeah. Totally. Understanding your why I think really determines your how, and as mm -hmm. circumstances or situations change, um, and you have to adapt, it doesn't change the why, right? Like you right. still persist in the why. Uh, and, um, 
And those those obstacles can become huge opportunities, um, like you said, for partnerships and for God to provide like only God can um, as we kind of hold on loosely to, to whatever it is that we feel led to or called to do. Um, another thing that you've really, I think, um, in case anybody missed it, uh, you've really kind of described this whole idea of um, a decentralized mission, right? That yeah. that you describe Spring Forest as, and um, and that's different than uh, you know our understandings of the inherited or the the ecclesiology of our inherited models of church, right? This whole yeah. decentralized, we we have um, come so far from this priesthood of all believers idea yeah. that that Peter talks about in his letter. So, um, say a little bit about that um, because I think that's significant to how the 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 character of the community really uh, uh, tastes like the community, right? The community it it um, it smells like it, it tastes like it, it looks like it, rather than Elaine saying, "Here's my grandiose idea, let's do this," right? Yeah. Uh, but that it's kind of emerged from the community, and that's so significant, I think, um, in these in in these missional movements. So, say a little bit about that. Yeah, so this this um, concept, part of it is based on what makes for a good missional church, that where, where its self-understanding is the sent out people instead of the sucked in people. Yes. And um, so our rule of life, which is prayer, work, table, and neighbor, the idea here is that anyone who is on our lead team, and there are 17 people on our lead team, mm-hmm. um, is going to practice that in their own neighborhood. They're going to practice that where their other circles of people are. And um, they'll foster community and foster self-giving of that community in ways that make sense contextually. So for example, one of our people, uh, Lisa Bachman, who's a retired deaconess, a United Methodist deaconess, Mm -hmm. um, lives in a neighborhood uh, on the Eno River. It's called the Brigadoon neighborhood. It's such a fun name. (laughs) she has enough land that she said she'd like to start a satellite garden satellite to our farm in her neighborhood a community garden that she she could share with her neighbors and she knew her neighbors before a little bit but not not in depth and she's lived in the neighborhood for some time so we helped her set up a garden in her neighborhood and helped her to you know figure out how and people just started coming anyway people are always curious Mm -hmm. about community Mm -hmm. always want to kind of hang out and watch and maybe help a bit so out of that community garden, um, several of our volunteers and one of our persons who's now a 30 hours a week staff person that we pay as a farmer, uh, uh-huh. gotten involved here at the farm and involved in other things we do like refugee support and ESL and things like that. Um, so, so that's a contextualized expression for Lisa. But then another thing about Lisa is in her work as a deaconess, she's been passionate for a long time about uh, immigration rights and what the result, what causes forced migration and what the the devastating consequences are. So she um, wrote a grant uh, and started. She started within us a group called Hope for Humanity, and she wrote some grants to get funding to get it going. And they she has now um, some webinars and things like that that she's developed during COVID that she's educated mm-hmm. a whole bunch of churches and other groups to understand these issues and how people can get involved. But in addition to that, she's um, working with us on our new ESL program, uh, supporting it with H4H funding and so on. Um, We have actually 
about 20 people, adults in our ESL class, and there were about 10 okay. kids. And it's it's a big program now that we that we're doing in in partnership with a couple other churches. So for Lisa, her neighborhood group is around the garden, and her larger sense of calling yeah. is this educational piece. That's one example. Um, yeah. We have another person who lives in Winston Salem. You know, that's an hour and a half from here, and she mm-hmm. leads our monthly contemplative spirituality group called Breathe. It's on Zoom, so it's not a big deal that she's up there. But then she and her husband come come for leader meetings or campfires when it's safe and things like that. So um, for her, uh, it's a Zoom neighborhood. Right. But she and her husband are also practicing the rule of life and hospitality in their actual neighborhood where they live. Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. Uh, it's like that. It's a, a whole range of things. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's 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 recognizing first of all the uniqueness of the gifts that people bring to the table. Yes. Uh right? And um literally and figuratively uh and and then empowering them yeah. to to utilize those gifts, right? To expand the mission and 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 to to be that incarnational witness wherever it is that they are, uh, whether it be uh, in a neighborhood down the street or, you know, an hour and a half away, uh, mm-hmm. you know, expanding the, the, the imprint and the mission of the church and, and all of these different places. Yeah. And again, recognizing the, the, the significance of the difference in the gifts that are brought, but also the significance and all of those gifts being deployed together, mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, for the furthering of the mission of the, of, of God. So, um, that's a beautiful example of that. Um, one of the things that um, you mentioned is this um, rule of life mm-hmm. and how that kind of orders uh, what you what you do, how you live, how you practice. Um, so how did that kind of come into being? I know we were talking about the Beguines and they didn't have a formal rule of life right. that kind of emerged from their local context, from their local community. So how did your rule of life kind of come into being? It was a matter of uh, first moving here and living here and then naming what we were doing in community. So actually mm. naming what was happening. Instead of having a theoretical thing that we're trying to live into, it was naming what we were doing. So we were definitely praying together daily. We do morning and evening prayer five days a week, okay. 20 minutes long each time. And we do it on Zoom so everybody can be on there. Mm-hmm. So we were naming that. We were praying together. We were working together. Um, working on spiritual formation work, working on the farm and the forest and whatever else work needed to be done, dishes, food, hospitality. Yes. Uh, We were um, practicing uh, the table together, um, eating together as much as we can and practicing the Eucharistic table together. uh, That's very inclusive. And um, we were neighboring together. We have a self-understanding that our community is not for ourselves, but for to give away. And the more we give it away, the more we feel fully alive too. <laughs> so, yes, so yes. putting language to what was happening uh, as these right. sort of core practices. But what we've discovered then is those core practices of uh, that are our rule of life now uh, also capture what our strategic intent is. Yes. And so by following that, um, it's it's a more of a journey mentality than a destination mentality. So good. So we're always on pilgrimage, and these are the practices that keep us on the journey together. Mm, that's wonderful, beautiful. Uh, Elaine, is there something perhaps that I have not asked you 
uh, or that we have not talked about that you think is important to this conversation in regards to innovative expressions of church? Yeah, I'll say one more thing, and that's about money. Um, you can't have mm-hmm. these conversations without thinking of money because it, mm-hmm. costs, it costs money to do something new. It costs money to do something old, too. It, it costs mm-hmm. money to do things that aren't working anymore. So, yeah, 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 exactly. Um, yes. Um, part of the way forward, especially for fresh expressions and for even the inherited church that's going to survive this great reformation, um, is to find ways to fund our own ministries that are not reliant upon two or three families with deep pockets, Mm. but instead for us to find ways for substantial teams that are bivocational and mostly lay people who are well-equipped. And so um, part of what we're developing here, I've explained everything we're developing, but uh, in asking to be appointed, myself to be appointed when Francis leaves, we've asked for no salary because I earn my income uh, teaching and leading retreats and my social security, you know, kind of like <laughs> sort of cobble together my income, but it's, it's enough. And, uh, and then everybody else on the team, uh, we do pay very tiny stipends to some, some of the leaders because of the gasoline involved in what they're doing, you know, the t- transportation really. Um, but developing models of ministry that are predominantly lay led Mm-hmm. Well-equipped lay people, which is why we developed Neighborhood Seminary, and that are self-funding through some kind of small business that does good in the world, that's good for the earth, and that provides some jobs for a few people, especially those who may be difficult to employ in other situations. That's something that's- we really got to pay attention to. Yeah, no, that's so good. And it sounds like, you know, that uh, this is a multivocational, at least bivocational, multivocational venture with that leadership team and those who are really kind of um, uh, living out this rule of life and and what it means to be um, on mission with God where you are. Yeah. So thank you so much, Elaine. This has been such a rich conversation. Uh, So many uh, gold nuggets in it. And I look forward to seeing what the next chapter of of Spring Forest looks like. And um, whatever your next book is, like, sign me up. Okay. It's called (laughs) Trauma-Informed Evangelism, and it'll be out in early 2023. uh, Okay, wonderful. Wow. Charles Kaiser and I wrote it together. So so poignant for such a time as this Mm -hmm. so poignant well thank you so much it's been a joy to be with you thank you elaine fresh expressions is a worldwide movement of everyday missionaries who want to see churches thrive and that means taking the church to the places where we eat play and work to learn a simple five-phase process for starting a new expression of church, go to freshexpressionsus.org backslash how to start. The Fresh Expressions podcast is hosted by me, Gannon Sims, and my colleague, Heather July. It's edited by Joel Limbowen and produced by Kathleen Blackie and Chris Morton. Our national director is Dr. Christopher Backer. If you've learned something or been encouraged by this podcast, please help us spread the word. You can give us a review on Apple Music or Spotify and share this episode on your social media. Now may the Lord be gracious unto us and bless us and make his face shine on us so that God's ways may be known on the earth, God's saving help among all the nations. Grace and peace.